Church, let's pray together in the spirit of worship. Jesus, we thank you for this day, with the day that you have made. We will rejoice, we will be glad in it. We thank you for the fellowship of believers, Lord. We thank you for the privilege of lifting up the name of Jesus together. And we give you praise. Lord, you said that when we lift you up, that as you are lifted up, that you would draw all of us to yourself, all people. And so, Lord, we thank you today for that promise. We thank you for the privilege of being in your presence right now. Lord, I would ask that you would revive our hearts today, that you would revive us in our hearts, our homes, revive our community. We pray for your church, Lord, as we have been going through this passage in 1 Thessalonians. We pray as Paul did that your church, that your love would overflow and increase. We pray, God, for your church that we would be blameless and holy before you. We pray for a spirit of readiness that we would be prepared and expectant. So Jesus, we thank you for this season. We thank you for your your presence with us. And even now, Lord, with the, the fresh breeze, we pray that you would refresh our hearts. Thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray that you would make it a beautiful thing to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Get settled in. This is our last gathering outside, and I want to give a special thank you to our staff who has served so faithfully, been flexible. I want to give a really big thank you to our volunteers who have done the setup and everything from putting tents to running wires to making sure that cameras are functioning so that we can be connected with you here on the lawn as well as you who are joining us from your homes or other locations, those who are in the sanctuary even right now with some nice cool seats as well. We're thankful for all that God has been doing in this season. We have been scattered in many ways, but we have not been abandoned. God has been with us in every phase of this journey. And I want you to know, church, that despite significant challenges that we have walked through, that we have seen new faith taking root with new believers. We have seen old faith that has been rekindled even through hardship. We've celebrated baptisms We've even welcomed new members into our church in this odd time. Although we do have to say, we just did a membership class a couple of weeks ago, and it was sort of strange because we realized some of the people that were working their way in this process of membership, they had actually never really been in the facility in a normal sort of season yet. So they're kind of learning the ropes in a whole different kind of way. But God has been with us. God is good. We thank him for his kindness to us. We've been in a season of regathering. Reconnecting, and it has been wonderful at various events and services to see faces, some of which we haven't seen for a while. And as we're getting to reconnect with you, that has been a wonderful thing. We're also in a, a rebuilding phase as we kind of get back inside. We've got all kinds of ministry rebuilding and, and uh, kind of reimagining that we're trying to do. We're going to be in the process of doing. So lots to pray for uh, in this season. But we believe in Christ that the best is always yet to come. And so we look forward to see what he has for us in this new season. Let me give you uh, just a real brief review of some of the things that we have been covering in our series, Living in Light of Eternity, which has been a study in the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. We're starting the last chapter today, and then I will be finishing that, Lord willing, next week as we are back inside. 
But in chapter 4 and 5, Paul is beginning to lay out the challenge to this church that he loves so dearly. And as he's, he's commending them for the various aspects of their faith and the ways in which they have allowed God to work in them, he says, now I want you to be ready for the return of Christ. So last week we were talking about what does he mean when he talks about the resurrection from the dead of those who are asleep in Christ? And what does it mean that the church would be raptured? We talked about those last week. This week he continues in that theme in 1 Thessalonians 5. So I'm going to ask you to read along with me in your Bibles if you would. I'm reading from the New International Version. It says, Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should not surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. May God add blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Uh, I sense in my spirit, as I've been preparing this message, that perhaps the Lord wants to stir some things. Maybe it's on an individual level. Maybe it's on a corporate level. And uh, just to give you a little forewarning, if you will, that at the end of the service today, as this is our last service outdoors, I'm going to invite us to come together, maybe fill in a little bit of this nice open green space here, as a, as a declaration of prayer to the Lord in thanks for what he has done, but also in expectation for what he will do, that we would be a people who live out a posture of expectation. So Paul continues his discourse on the second coming of Christ here, having already touched on the important reality of life beyond death. Now he's underscoring this notion of the day of the Lord. This is known throughout scriptural history as a day of sudden both judgment and salvation. And it was actually commonly referred to in the Old Testament prophets. Amos chapter 5 refers to the day of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 13 refers to the day of the Lord. Joel chapter 1 and 2 refer to the day of the Lord. Obadiah, which is only one chapter, but verse 21 refers to the, the day of the Lord. One of the consistent themes is that Scripture states that nobody knows when that day is going to be. So we literally, when we talk about the imminent return of Christ, we don't know if Christ will return before this service is over or after all of our lifetimes have passed. But Scripture says nobody knows when the day of the Lord is going to be. Well, throughout history, people have wondered about this and oftentimes found themselves making sort of guesses that end up being wrong. I don't know if any of you have studied any of the history of William Miller uh, but William Miller gained a very large following in the 1840s. They were known as Millerites, 
and they were those that kind of followed his theological uh, teaching on the, the end times. And he actually began to predict the dates. He said, I believe it will be at this time that people will come. In fact, he had to predict a few times because the days kept passing, much to the disappointment of his followers. But what was known as the Great Disappointment in 1844 uh, they actually had people selling possessions and going to, to, to wear bed sheets and staying on the highest possible places. They would go to the highest mountains they could get to so that the trip up would be shorter. And sadly, you know, one Millerite, this person was named Hiram, uh, Hiram Edson, he wrote this. He said, uh, when, when the return of Christ didn't come, as had been predicted, he said, our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted. And such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before. We wept and we wept until the day dawn. So this was this, this grave disappointment of waiting for Christ, trying to predict when he was come, but being wrong. More recently, in many of our lifetimes, Harold Camping made himself rather fam famous, if you know that name, uh, predicting the second coming of Christ in 1994, again with multiple dates that passed. And then again in 2011, that was supposed to be the big one, that he was really certain, but then those didn't work as well. And he finally did say this at the end. He said, you know, upon further thought, I think I should have heeded Matthew 24, 36, which is where Jesus says, nobody knows the day or the hour. It's even the angels in heaven don't, don't know when this day of the Lord will be. But that doesn't mean that we don't wait expectantly for it. So I would ask you to consider in this passage, what are a few things that we can know about the day of the Lord? The first point is this. Uh, Paul says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Uh, verse 2, you know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the, the night. This is also well illustrated throughout Scripture by many of the New Testament writers. So Peter refers to the, 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 the second coming of Christ coming like a thief in the night, 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done uh, in it will be laid bare. Uh, Jesus says in, in Matthew 24.43. So if you want an end times sort of treasure trove, go to Matthew chapter 24. In verse 43, he says, But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have not let his house be broken into. So Jesus uses this reference as well. And then Jesus, depicted by the apostle John in Revelation, uh, verse, uh, chapter 16, 15, Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is he, the one who stays awake. I, I want to talk about this for just a few moments because I think there's a couple of things that are important for us. First of all, Scripture is very clear. When you've got the major writers of Scripture, Paul is in agreement with Peter, is in agreement with the teachings of Jesus, all saying the same thing, that this day of the Lord will come like a thief. The bottom line is this, that Jesus' second coming will be sudden, but it will also be obvious. And that's why in, in 2 Thessalonians, Peter or Paul actually writes back to the Thessalonians and says, look, you're worrying about having missed the day of the Lord. I'm telling you, you are not going to miss it. And he lays out a handful of things to say, these are the sort of things that you will see. In Matthew 24, Jesus lays out a handful of things to say, these are the signs of the times. But the day of the Lord is going to be sudden. It's not going to, in fact, it's, it's described in some ways as, as lightning, 
you know, that comes from the sky. And when you watch a storm, it's so hard sometimes. You want to see kind of where the next kind of big patch of lightning is going to be. But as soon as it comes, it's gone. It's that fast. The illustration of coming on like childbirth actually made me think of when our first child was born. Amy was getting ready, and we knew it was going to be soon, and she was starting to feel some contractions and all that kind of stuff. And me being the good student, we went to birthing class and did that whole experience. And so they said, you know, a lot of people rush to the hospital. So I was Mr. Laid Back. And I just said, honey, it's going to be good. We only got like an eight-minute drive to the hospital. Let's just watch a little TV, maybe have a snack. We'll just hang out. It'll be good. And then uh, we finally, you know, we, we got through to the doctor, and, and they said, well, how, how close are the contractions and all that kind of stuff? And, and we told them, and they were like, yeah, you need to get in here like 10 minutes ago. Let's, let's get going. And Amy was like, I've been trying to tell him to get moving. So sometimes you're not ready. I'm, I'm struck by the fact that as followers of Christ, we are called to be attentive to be expectant, to be aware of what are the signs of Christ's coming, and yet we don't get to know the specifics. We don't get to know the day. We don't get to know the hour. It is if perhaps Jesus is saying, I don't want you to live for this moment. I want you to live in light of this moment. In fact, our series is not to say simply we want you to be ready for Jesus appearing, but we want you to live in light of eternity. Now, I want to tell one other quick uh, story that kind of comes down to this point of if you knew how something was going to turn out, you would have probably planned a little differently, right? I mean, have have you had an experience even in the last week or month that you would say, if I knew that this would be the end result, I obviously would have done something differently, but we don't always get the privilege of knowing what is gonna happen. Uh, My baseball career ended early, mostly due to lack of talent, but it has provided me countless examples of character building. And one such example, I remember I was brought into the end of a Little League game to close out the, the game. It probably was my intimidating, you know, 51-mile-an-hour fastball or something they put me in for. And I actually got in and retired the first two batters pretty quickly, struck them out. And I was feeling very strong. At this moment, the catcher, who was a buddy of mine, he came out uh, to the pitcher's mound to have a little conference, little, you know, it's like, like the big leagues, you know, we're talking about what's got to happen, you know, and, and he says, Aaron, I want you to walk this next guy, and I say, yeah, that probably sounds like a good idea, because I have seen this, the next guy that was coming up was this gigantic truck size 13-year-old who had just been hitting balls out of the park all day long, and so he said, just walk this guy, get the next one, and the game will be over, and, and good job, so I said, okay, so I threw three Three, uh, first three pitches I threw deliberate uh, non-strikes. And then I thought to myself, do I really want to just give this guy the walk? I'm going to walk him. But don't, wouldn't it feel better to just burn one strike by him so that I could say at the end of the game, well, I walked him because I was told to, but I obviously could throw at least one strike by him. So I did. The man-child hit that ball so far that I don't think most of us even saw where it landed. He tipped his hat to me with a smile and jogged the bases. I got rattled. I lost my confidence. I ended up having to get pulled out. I didn't, couldn't even finish the inning. I, people, I was walking people, and I just got all rattled. The coach was like, all right, you're done. 
So I'm sitting in the dugout, and my catcher buddy sits down beside me. And he goes, uh, hey, probably should have walked him. I say, yeah, I probably should have walked him. If I had known how it was going to turn out, I would have done some things differently. We likely say that kind of phrase a thousand times in our life. The fact of the matter is when it comes to what does it mean to be prepared for the coming of Christ, what would we do now? We actually asked this phrase, if you knew that Jesus Christ was coming today, would you do something differently in the next few hours? I would be curious as you take inventory of your last few weeks, if God has gotten your attention in any areas to say, you know what, you're not exactly living as if Christ is coming right now. I know he's pointed that out to me a handful of times. Christ is returning for his church. I believe that he wants us to know that in a profound way so that even though we don't know the day or the hour, we can say with certainty we know that he is coming. It's never far from our hearts. It's never far from our minds. In fact, it shapes much of our way of being. One of the things that struck me as I was kind of contemplating this day of the Lord and the fact that we don't know exactly what the day and the hour is. I wonder if another challenge in God's economy and his plan is this. We, even those of us who love and live for Christ, we don't get to actually control the narrative. Being prepared is not the same as being in control. And I actually wonder if maybe in the evangelical world, in the, in the Christian tradition, maybe one of the reasons that we sort of cling to the latest thing when it's a secret re revelation or somebody says something, it sort of perks up our attention, not just because we're anxious and excited about the return of Christ, which hopefully we are, but also the fact that it gives us a sense that we know what's going on. We know the schedule, perhaps. We cling to the latest secret revelation, and maybe this is why William Miller's and Harold Camping's generate large followings. We feel good about being in control, and who wouldn't want to feel a little bit of control, especially in a world like this? It can be a mess at times. But the bottom line is this. We don't get to control. We do get to trust him. We do get to seek him. And by his grace, we get to find him. So the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's God's economy. That's the way he has set it up. The second is this. The day of the Lord will bring both joy and justice. So Paul kind of illustrates, he goes into some detail here, but essentially he says this. You are not children of the darkness. The children of the darkness, they're going to be surprised at the return of Christ because essentially they have been hedging their bets, hoping either that he won't come or that he doesn't exist, but only to find when he does come, he's coming in judgment, everything being laid bare. He says in verse, in verse 4, But you, brothers and sisters, you're not in darkness, so this day should not surprise you like a thief. You are children of light and children of the day. We don't belong to the night or to the darkness. So I've been thinking about this notion that the return of Christ will bring a full spectrum of response from humanity. Uh, Hebrews 9 says this rather plainly, verse 27 and 28, just as people are de destined once to, di to die and after that to face judgment, so Christ will sac was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear for a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So there's clearly a joy 
at Christ's return for those who are expecting or waiting him. Paul essentially says, you're not going to be surprised and you don't need to despair because you are identified with him. That's actually the great promise of the, of the day of the Lord. You know, if it, if it makes you nervous to consider the reality of the return of Christ, that ought to be an indicator, Holy Spirit indicator in my life, in yours, that we could make adjustments so that his coming is not something that would intimidate us, but that would overjoy us. When, when Jesus gave the story of the talents, it's another fascinating and very clear sort of illustration of him saying, I'm entrusting something to you so that the way you live is important, the way that you steward your life is important. I'm going away, but the master of the house is coming back. And so for the servant who is serving faithfully, his return is a, is a joyful experience. And so may we know him as in, in his joyful return. But then there's also the judgment of Christ's return. Judgment is very unpopular in our world today. That's probably the least, the least favorable thing that you could be uh, is labeled as judgmental. You know, don't judge me. And now here we have this picture of Christ coming back to judge us. But it's vital that we understand this, and I'm gonna give you two reasons why. Number one, the first reason is it tells us that what we do with this life matters eternally. What you do with the thing, the, this life that God has stewarded you, I don't know if it's 80 years or eight years or 18 years or 100 years, or what, like the life that the Lord has given to you is to be stewarded, and what you do with that life matters. See, this is a fascinating thing. We can, we can run into a tension when we talk about the second coming of Christ because people will make the accusation, yeah, but then you become so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. You know, you're literally just kind of waiting around for Jesus to come back. C.S. Lewis addresses it this way. He says, interestingly, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for this present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. And he goes on to reference people like William Wilberforce and various evangelical movements and things like that. But here's the, the statement that those who do most for the present world are the ones precisely who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. What you do with this life matters eternally. I want to read you a little bit longer quote from Leo Tolstoy. So I'm going to read you most of War and Peace. No, I'm not. Tolstoy says this. He says, my question was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man from, and every, from the foolish child to the wisest elder. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live. And as I had found by my experience, it was this. What will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? He was in a place where he had achieved so much. He had become world-renowned. He had, he had money. He had all of these things. And yet in a very sort of ecclesiastical way, he's asking the question, what really is life all about? Why should I live, he says. Why wish for anything or do anything? And this is how he summed it up. It can be expressed as thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? That is the pervasive question 
And the beauty about understanding the day of the Lord is that the absolute answer to that is yes. That there is opportunity absolutely right now for every one of us to be invested in the things that matter. And so brothers and sisters, don't give yourself to the things that don't. Don't waste your life on the things that don't matter for eternity. So the first thing, the judgment of Christ, tells us that our life matters eternally. But secondly, I want you to understand this. It is the judgment of Christ that brings final justice. And as I just said a moment ago, judgment is probably the least popular word in our world today. But justice is not. Everybody is clamoring for justice. Everybody wants justice right now. Justice is an eternally good thing, but it is essentially defined by the judgment of God. And now, we're not going to dig into this a lot, although we certainly could go uh, deeply into this, but part of the judgment of Christ coming back is to essentially sort out those who have, in fact, lived for him. Those who have said, Christ is my greatest ideal, and the joy that they find on that day is that they get the thing that their heart longed after the most. So in this moment, in this lifetime, when my heart gets conflicted sometimes with what it wants, I'm continually brought back to its greatest pursuit, which is to say that we want Christ. There are those that will spend their life specifically saying they don't want Christ. They don't want to be with him. They don't want his lordship. They don't want his presence. And so Paul is essentially saying throughout their life, yes, they didn't want Jesus, and in the end they will get exactly what they wanted. And that is also the judgment of God at the day of the Lord. The third thing we see is that the day of the Lord places us together with Christ. So Paul says this, he says, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. I want to ask you just to consider this statement as we wrap up this portion here in a few moments. What you hope for will shape what you live for. What you hope for will shape what you live for. And church, I want you to understand this as you you contemplate that, and I hope that the, the Holy Spirit might give you that question to say, okay, what am I hoping for? What am I waiting on? What what is really at that basement level of my heart cry? What you hope for shapes what you live for. I want you to see when we understand the the proper perspective of the, the day of the Lord, that if you are in Christ today, you have way more going for you than you probably even realize. This is a tremendous perspective changer. Just indulge me this for a few more moments. If at the end of this life, either the grave that has been conquered or the coming of Christ, in the end of this life, if that is in fact secure in him, then you are able to endure anything in this scene. As a show of hands, let me just ask you to to consider this. How many of you, as you think back on the last 15 months, 18 months, would say, you know, I have been dealt some hurts, maybe some relational strain, 
maybe some things that didn't work out the way that I had hoped that it would, maybe some things that were grave disappointments for me. Any disappointment in the last 18 months, please raise a hand. Okay, good. It's not bad. Here's the second one. Any uncertainty about the future? Anything that would make you a little uncertain about, mm, not quite sure how this is going to work out, not quite sure where this is going to go, not quite sure how this is going to develop, not quite sure how I have some uncertainty about the future. Go ahead and raise a hand. Good participation, folks. You're great. Here's the fact of the matter. If the end of this life, either the grave that has been conquered or the coming of Christ, is secure, we can endure the hurts of our past. You can endure the things. If somebody said something that was dumb, somebody said something that was hurtful, somebody judged you in a way that you didn't appreciate over these last six months, eight months, 18 months, whatever. Somebody lets you down in a way that you're still feeling some of that pain. The security of what Christ has done and will do trumps all of those lesser things. The uncertainties of the future, what will happen the things that are yet unknown. What will it look like? You know, I mean, I've got uncertainties. I wonder what in the world is it gonna look like next week when we all kind of get back in the church and now we're gonna sort of figure out sort of who's ready to come inside and who's not. I mean, there's been some anxiety over this whole kind of journey for, for all of us. Some uncertainty. But our future is secure. The end is written. All of these things find their perspective in light of what Christ has done and in light of what Christ is going to do. And so the day of the Lord places us together with Christ to be found in him is the joyful hope of the believer. I believe when we start to get this right, it changes the way we pray. It changes the way we react. It changes the way that we endure spiritual warfare. It changes the way that we walk forward into the things that are uncertain because we know that the day of the Lord will bring us together with Christ. Can I encourage you, church, to take that thing that maybe was a hurt over these last 18 months or maybe multiple things, maybe a dozen things, maybe it was one thing a week, I don't know, and to begin to lay that at the feet of Christ. To know that Christ has been with you even in your pain. Christ has been with you even in your uncertainty. That Christ is for you even now. Could I encourage you, those who are working through seasons of uncertainty, to lay that uncertainty at the foot of Christ today. I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to ask our worship team to lead us in one last song. And as we worship, we're going to give you then an opportunity. We're going to pray corporately just a, a season of, of thanks to the Lord and of dedication to the Lord of what he has for us next. This is a great opportunity to open up our hands, right, church? We're not gonna grip too tightly on things because there's a whole lot that we still don't know, but we're gonna open up our hands and say, Jesus, would you lead us? We trust you as our good shepherd. So I'm gonna ask you to stand, if you would, at this time, if you're able to. I want you just to join me for a few moments as we pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you right now that you love your church. That you have a plan in place that you are unfolding. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people 
I'm speaking specifically to those who are walking with you now. I pray that we would be a people who would be expectant, that we would not go too long without kind of keeping our eyes up, that we would be mindful of the fact that you have not left us and you are coming back for us. So Lord, I pray that you would spark us by the power of your Holy Spirit to, to, to move us in that direction. Father, I thank you that the, the reality is that if, if the end is, is in fact written and, the, and you have the plan in place and we can trust your planning, God, I thank you that it does allow us to overcome the hurts of the present or the past, the uncertainties of the present or the future. So I just pray that you might stir in us today. There's some people that maybe need to lay some things down. Lord, I would pray for the person who perhaps up to this point has kept you, Jesus, at an arm's distant distance. Lord, I would just ask that maybe by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would, you would quicken us, not, not to frighten us into faith, but to cause us to be deeply aware that the King is coming back and he will make right judgment over my life and yours. To be found in him will be great joy. To be found apart from him, you'll have no, no, nothing to stand on. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's someone who needs to take that step of faith today to say, I would fall on the finished work of Jesus, let today be the day of salvation. The today be the day of stepping out of darkness and into light. Let today be a day of restored relationship. Lord, I thank you that you are coming soon. Cause us to be a people who, ex who ov are overflowing with faith as we look to you. And now as we sing, God, I pray that our, our, our song would be sweet as we declare, Lord, we wait for you. We believe you're coming soon. Like a bride waiting for her groom, we'll be a church that is ready for you. May that be true of us, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.